goal of this transformation is not to make everyone a masochist. Like Ops has a well-deserved reputation for masochism and we need to get rid of that, right? The point is not everyone should suffer. The point is, this is how we make it better. Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Masters of Data podcast. And I'm excited to have a guest on here that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a very long time. And I think many of you will recognize her name. And I think we're in for a fun ride and a fun discussion uh, with Charity Majors. She's the CTO and co-founder of Honeycomb, uh, has a long history of uh, just uh, making you know, funny commentary on complicated subjects, particularly observability, which we're going to talk about today. And I'm really excited to have her here. Welcome to the podcast. Yay, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And, um, you know, Charity, particularly with somebody, I, you know, one of the things I like about following you, I think you, you bring, you know, levity and fun to a complicated area and you're just, you know, you're just fun to follow. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and, and I, I would actually personally love to know your story. And I think the, the listeners love that too. We always start with that. So tell us a little bit more. I mean, how did you, how did you end up where you are? Like what led you to the technology area to be a software engineering and end up at Honeycomb? Well, uh, I come from rural, I come from the the backwoods of Idaho. (laughs) I was homeschooled. And uh, I ran away and went to college when I was 15. And oh, wow. I had a piano performance scholarship. But I got there and I started looking around and realized everyone was poor. And I'd been poor all my life. I did not want to continue being poor. <laughs> so <laughs> I, swatched, I switched my keyboards uh, and I went for computers instead. I've, and I have always just kind of been a tinkerer uh, more than someone who's you know, formally trained. Because all the training that we need is out there on the internet. And we can just yeah. find it now. So I've kind of made a career out of being the first ops person who joins a startup who, you know, have got a bunch of software engineers and they've got a thing that they think is ready to be a real thing. And they've got users and the worlds are colliding between beautiful the- theory and like messy reality. And that's really where <laughs> I like to sit. And I was, I was doing that for Parse, the mobile backend as a, as a service a few years ago. And whew, we were on a roller coaster, you know, we got acquired by Facebook. Um, and around the time we got acquired by Facebook, I was coming to the horrified conclusion that we had built a system that was basically undebuggable by some of the best engineers in the world doing all of the quote unquote right things. And figuring that out is what led me to start Honeycomb afterwards. Because when I was leaving Facebook, you know, I, I kind of just grew up with a start and went, oh shit. I don't know how to engineer anymore without this stuff that we've built here. It's, it's become so core, not to just how I, how I fix it when the site is down, you know, but like how I, how I see it. It's, it's like my five senses for production. And the idea of going back to just like building in the dark was just unthinkable. <laughs> I like the way uh, you describe it. And, you know, one thing I want to, I want to go back to, I, I actually hadn't made that connection to, I was going back and reading a little more of your bio that you, um, you uh, you started out in music. I, it's it's funny how many people I've interviewed oh, yeah. on here that come from a music background, and I can definitely resonate because one of my I was a music minor, and I I still love to play and and play with friends and just kind of do it for fun. But I mean, one of my friends asked me is like, well, why why didn't you become a professional musician? And I 
ran into that in college and I was like, because I like to feed my family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's there's something not very romantic about earning $12,000 a year <laughs> as a 30-year-old. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it, it, it is interesting how it, you know, the... the um, well, the patterns are so mathematical, you know, and when you're when you're dealing with these highly abstract systems, um, I think it tickles the same places in your brain. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, some of the smartest people in math I ever met were were actually musicians. I don't think half the time they even realized it. But and and, and two, I can I can definitely resonate. You know, I I um I my first um, job out of school was with um, a company called LoudCloud. You know, Ben Horwitz and Mark Andreessen's company. And uh, I remember like in the early days of what was what was in ops then and like, you know, going in, I did a lot of consulting and people that were willing to either live in the dark or just be surrounded by a bunch of red buttons and that nobody yeah. could explain, like, you yeah. know, red alerts. And, You're like cave creatures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I just, I was like, how can you, how can you live like that? So that, I mean, that was the first time that I really ran into monitoring was like, I can't, I can't live like this. Like, how do you guys deal with yeah. this? Yeah. Um, no. So you you kind of you lived the the real life um, you 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 kind of saw that problem and then you started Honeycomb I guess as a way to kind of formalize and build a product that did what you wanted to do that you wish you had had is that kind of how yeah, it, how you thought about it Yeah so you know when when we were when, you know in, in the in the dog days of Paris you know when it was down like every day. so it it was it created this really interesting set of problems where we were so we were doing a lot of we were doing microservices before there were microservices. We were doing a lot of things before there was the formal, you know, word for it. So we we're kind of striking out in our, on our own in a lot of ways. And one of these ways was, you know, so we're using a shared pool of workers for the API. Um, and we're using, you know, shared database backends. And we've, around the time we got acquired, we had 60,000 mobile apps all sharing this, the same pools of hardware. Well, you know, we, we didn't pick a threaded language, so that was a problem. But like, you know, the, the API could go down so fast before anyone could be alarmed, before anyone could be alerted, because it would all fill up with requests that were in flight waiting to be served by one of these shared things of hardware, you know? So like the database would have a slow query running on it and everyone would get backed up. And the API would go down. And like, so like a few times, like a week, I'd be here and and Disney would be like, parse is down. And I'd be like, <laughs> Parse is not down. Like, behold my wall full of dashboards. They are all green, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> uh, the other category of problems was that, you know, a user would be having a terrible experience, but it would never show up in our top-level graphs because they're all aggregates, right? They're all aggregates. And and mobile traffic isn't huge. So maybe Disney's app is doing four, requ- four requests per second, and I'm doing 100,000 requests per second on the back end. Never even going to show up, even if they're 100% down. And if they're down because of, you know, hardware starvation, you know, as, as we got more and more databases, you know, behind this API, there were more and more and more points of failure. And if anyone on any of these backends was slow, you know, everyone went down. And, and it was literally impossible to, to figure out who, because, you know, with logging tools, like logs are great, but you can basically only find what you're looking for, uh, what you remembered to log in the first place and what you know to search for. Right. And with monitoring and metrics, you can basically only find something is going to show up in your top 10 list. Right. Yeah. If it's below that, you're screwed. And below that, you're literally like just like spraying and praying and going and like pouring over code and log, log lines. And like, because, because the thing is, like, your log might fill up with requests to one user or one query or one whatever. And that might not be the problem. It's just all the ones that backed up behind the problem. And like getting visibility into what is actually happening at any minute moment, like it was it was a really hard problem. And I yeah. tried every tool on the market. 
<laughs> and none yeah. of them was helping. And there was this one tool at Facebook called Scuba, which is this butt ugly, aggressively <laughs> hostile to users tool that did one thing really well, which was it let you slice and dice in near real time on dimensions of high cardinality. And by that, like, I mean, like, imagine you have a collection of 100 million users and the highest possible cardinality, because it's just unique members of a set, the highest possible cardinality will be a social security number or request ID, anything that's unique. Last name and first name are very high cardinality. Right. Gender is low cardinality <laughs> and species equals human would be the lowest of all, right? And like all of the tools out there, all of the monitoring tools um, that use, you know, metrics and tags can only support low cardinality dimensions. You get over a hundred members of the set and suddenly they're like, whoa, 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 you're blowing out our key space. Like you're going to have to like back out of that, right? And and so like being able to just like break down by by the time I left Parse, we had a million apps, right? So by being able to break down by one in a million apps and then at any combination of, you know, query, backend, uh, API key, whatever, was transformational. Like suddenly, instead of like having to sit here and use our human brains to hypothesize about what was happening, which was impossible, <laughs> suddenly we were able to just like put one foot in front, in front of the other and follow the trail of breadcrumbs. Like, like I could break down by, you know, Disney's app ID and go, mm, yep, they're all timing out. Well, is it all endpoints? So I can break down by endpoint. Um, are they all timing out? Break down by, you know, request ID or, or break down by um, the uh, return code. Um, yeah, it is. Okay. Is it all the endpoints or, or are they all slow or are they timing out? Oh, no, it's just some of them. Like, which ones are slow? Oh, it's just the read endpoints. Are they also? Uh, no, it's just the ones that talk to MongoDB. Is it all of them? No, it's just the ones in this AZ or this replica set. Is it, is it, you know, is it all of the rights? Oh no, it's just this one query that's slow. Oh, now I know the answer. And, and I don't have to know anything about what is, what is going to be waiting for me at the other end of this tunnel just to like ask a question, look at the answer and formulate another question, which by the way, sounds simple, but is revolutionary because in operations, we have been in this mode forever where we carry the world around in our heads <laughs> and and we have all the scar tissue based on, based on all the past outages that we've experienced. And we, we're, we get really good at like flipping through that, that Rolodex in our head and going, ah, yeah, I know what this pattern looks like. This means it's Redis, right? Or ah, this pattern, I remember this a year and a half ago when we ran out of file descriptors, you know, and, and just like jumping from possible answer to possible answer, which worked really well in a world of monoliths and single databases and works really, really, really poorly in a world where every time you get paid, it's something brand new. I remember when I was um, going back and rereading some of the stuff you had written. I, I really like the the way you had described, and like I've run into this in the conversation I had in my own experience, and in and in talking to you know people that do this every day. And I and I I like the way you described that, and I think that a lot of people don't appreciate is like this whole investigative process, like. And go back. What was Bring that? The science, you know, famous the computer science. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and also like the um. You, I know you would recognize the tweet. I forget the, but there was that uh, famous tweet. It's like we made um, we we converted to microservices so that every outage was like a murder mystery. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, so true. But there, but there's something about that, like that whole iterative hypothesis. Um, testing hypothesis testing scenario that I think a lot of people that haven't lived this 
it's it's hard to understand that it's not this, oh yeah, this is probably it. Well, if I already know the answer, then I should have fixed it already. But but you know, a lot of these microservices, you don't know the answer. You don't know what you're looking at. Exactly. The whole point of like being a fairly mature like system is that you've automated those out of existence. Right. You're not getting paged in the middle of the night and going, oh, this again. Let me check my run book. You know, like there are no more run books in this world because, you know, if you can predict the problem, you fixed it. Um, because, and you have to, or you will be drowning because there are, there's this other long tail of problems that are only ever going to happen once. <laughs> they never happen again. And yet you need to be able to diagnose them very quickly. And it's interesting because like, you know, this, this, the, the more scientific model of debugging, like a, a lot of people do it in their code when they're writing code, right? They've learned all these tricks and techniques for doing that, for like bisecting the problem, for like, you know, adding instrumentation at the right place to, to point out the problem. And, and, and it's interesting now because I think what we're seeing is because, you know, we've blown up the, the monolith, well, we can no longer trace things the way we used to be able to trace, like S-trace or whatever, right? Now it hops the network. So a whole category of our tools broke. And and what we're seeing now is kind of the blending of the two disciplines because now, you know, you have to have more operational tools to trace your code because it's going to hop across components. Oh, that's, uh, you know, that's really interesting way you describe that because I, I guess it also would be tied with the fact that through this whole transition from monoliths to to microservices, you also have this cultural change going on from kind of waterfall to agile to DevOps and there's more engineers have to take responsibility for the the stuff they write. Very, very much so. Like you don't have a prayer of debugging in a short amount of time if you didn't write it and maintain it. Like there's just no way you can hand that to an ops team and go figure it out, (laughs) you know? And, and similarly, like you aren't going to do a good job of writing these, these systems unless you're pretty heavily embedded in the operations of them because that, Operational issues are so central to microservices. And if you're making that someone else's problem, that's half your job. (laughs) You need that feedback loop like intensely. And I don't look at this as a new thing. I look at this as like a return to our our origins, right? Like in the beginning, there, there weren't like these specialized, you know, niche, you know, where I just write the code. I just run the code. You know, there was just like owning code you know like people would yell at you if your shit didn't work and so you would fix it and it was this very tight virtuous feedback loop where you got the feedback you needed in order to do the right thing and you know specialization and scale and blah blah blah. we've broken it up into all of these specializations but but like by doing that we also lost a lot of what motivates us right like I, I, I look at so many people who are so kind of disconnected from their jobs. They're just like, you know, they clock in, they write some code, they clock out, they don't really give a shit. And, and, and I can't help but feel like that's connected to the fact that they are so disconnected from their users and the impact of what they're building. And, and I feel like this is a, there's this whole virtuous cycle going on, you know, and there are people who will try to abuse it. There are people who just be like, haha. I've gotten so many DMs on people who are panicked. They're like, my manager says that charity major says that I need to put you on call and I don't want to because they get woken up five times a night and I'm, I don't want to be miserable. And I'm like, the goal of this transformation is not to make everyone a masochist. Like ops has a well-deserved reputation for masochism and we need to get rid of that, right? The point is not everyone should suffer. The point is, this is how we make it better. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, 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 Totally understand what you're saying, and and I think that um, 
it, it, it was, it was really interesting that that transition, particularly in the early two thousands when I was coming up is that, that you, you started just getting these people, the people that only knew how to run systems and the people that only need the right code. And I, I tell that story sometimes, but I remember one that always struck me is that we had, um, I worked on this particular, back then I was doing government consulting and I, we worked on this particular government contract where we were building a file sharing system. And it actually turned out to be the ones that, um, it turns out generals like to use PowerPoints. <laughs> you know? um, that's how they share their battle plans. And um, that and they, and basically this, this um, team, this development team wrote a new version of it. And they use a database that had never been used for the purpose and all this new stuff, which is, you know, fine to experiment with it, but they put it out in production. And, you know, and I was kind of sitting in what would be called now a DevOps seat and it went down, I, I shit you not, for 30 days. Oh, God. And, <laughs> and they were camped out in the conference room and, you know, the military brass like coming down their throats. And like, I mean, it was just an awful experience. And, it, and, and ever since then, I'm like, you know, they could have avoided that by being more involved in filling the pain earlier, but because they disconnected themselves from the production pain, it came all at once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no such thing as putting it off forever. <laughs> you could have it no. early and in small controllable doses, or you can have it all at once and have it be a real nightmare. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, ops like has always been, you know, we sit close to our users. Our, we should, we are very, our, our motivations are very closely aligned with theirs, right? And and that's why I have always found that, you know, ops teams have the tightest unit cohesion. <laughs> like they're the teams that they have each other's back. You know, there's a bit of a foxhole mentality, you know, and, and it's very, it's very bonding. I have had so many software engineers over the years wistfully ask if they could join my team just because they really envied that dynamic, you know, and there's that gallows humor and, and, and there's just a like, you know, grizzled, you know, seen it all sort of thing that, but it's like, I feel like too often leaders see this as entirely a negative, like ops is just a cost center, right? They don't see it for the grounding force that it really can be for a team. You know, I, I never heard anybody say it that way. And I think, uh, I think you're, you're, you're really on to something there. Um, yeah, because there was, I mean, sometimes that unit cohesion could get in the way because there was the Windows guys and the Linux guys and the database people. It, it absolutely can. It, tribalism <laughs> is a powerful force to be managed very consciously. <laughs> but like it, tribalism is just an extreme version of what bonds us as human beings. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And you, in, in having that cohesion is, is, is somewhat really makes it, makes we show it work. up to work for each other, you know, yeah. fundamentally, like we, we do. And, and so the more that you can like, reinforce that the, the happier people tend to be you know and, and and that can be taken too far too you know I've, I've seen so many people who really should have left their jobs years ago <laughs> they're too good for that place you know um but between you know our fear of interviews and our you know our need to be there for each other you know people can just stay and stagnate and you only get one career right and you're in charge of your career and uh but but yeah i i think that a dose of it is good and i think that it's really good like the lecture that I can give to office people now is it's time to, you know, you know, we need to stop erecting these kind of glass castles <laughs> where, where we keep them safe by making sure that nobody can touch them. <laughs> and we need to kind of like look at them like, you know, it's a, it's a playground that we need to build. And, you know, you accept the fact that your kid might get a bloody nose in the playground once in a while and it's fine, right? We build guardrails. We make sure that the slides aren't too high and everything. Uh, but you don't want them to like die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so 
So we really do need to be like inviting developers in and, and like having a spirit of enablement and empowerment. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, I think you're, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's one of the reasons when I was a product manager, I used to invite um, the engineers writing the code to be on interviews with the, uh, with users because it, it sometimes was painful. But, but the thing is, then they, then they understood. Yeah, they understood. For sure. At Parse, we had a rotation up till the end where developers would do a, a day of support where they would just do support tickets. And that, that is like the, the, the other side of on-call and, and operations work, right? It's the user interface stuff. And yes, I think that all developers should be very grounded in their users. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, um, kind of, uh, making a transition to kind of talk about, you know, um, the subject that your, your name possibly more than anybody else is connected with, with, uh, with observability. So out of this whole, you know, I don't know, milieu we've been talking about here and, and, you know, why, why there's this pain. Tell me a little bit more about, I mean, you've had a front seat to observability and the kind of birth of the term and the misuse of the term. So tell me a little bit more about like why it came about. Yeah, that was actually my fault, kind of. I mean, it might have been <laughs> inevitable, but like, you know, Honeycomb in 2016, we were we, we began in January and I spent the first six months of that year just wrestling with not how to build it. We knew how to build it, which was not trivial because we had to build our own storage engine and everything, but, but like how to talk about it because everybody was telling us the market is saturated. Datadog's about to IPO. There's little, there's no space. No, there's nothing left to be done. It's mature, right? And and we had had this experience. It was just so. I just didn't believe that, but I didn't know how to talk. About Every term in data is so overloaded, and and we knew that it wasn't a monitoring tool because monitoring has this very, you know, it's mostly about curating thresholds. You like you define some semi-arbitrary thresholds. You're like between this and this, it's fine. <laughs> so let's just <laughs> check over and over and over, make sure it's still fine, right? And we knew that that's not what we were building, but like every tool, every demo looks the same. And it was just infuriating. And and then there was a day in July at night or June or whatever when I Googled, and you can find my tweets. I actually went back and found my tweets from that day. When I when I looked up what observability means, because the only heritage in tech to that point was um, uh, Twitter's team had called themselves the observability team. And they were basically a monitoring team, but they used the term. So it was kind of out there. And I Googled it and I realized it had this really rich, see, dropout, right? Like I didn't actually know. All the math majors are like, well, duh, right? It has this really rich yeah. like heritage in mechanical engineering of like uh, observability is a mathematical dual of controllability. Yeah, I was a physics major and when I saw it, I was like, Oh yeah, of course. I've never heard it used like this. But yeah, yeah. I had never and, and 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 when I read the definition where it's about how well can you understand what's going on inside the system just by observing it from the outside, like I just had light bulbs going off. I was like, Oh my God, this is exactly what we're trying to do. Like the tooling that we've that that I had used at Facebook that I was trying to build was to to let you like understand what the working state of the system was, even if it was in a completely new state that you had never seen before. So you had no context on, you couldn't, you couldn't like pattern match to anything that happened before, just so that you could understand to like persist that state all the way through the, the execution of however many services, et cetera. Um, and, and, and I was just like, oh my God, this is what we're trying to build. And, and I started talking about it a lot. And then unfortunately, after a year and a half of my carpet bombing the world with talks about <laughs> observability, all the other vendors in like the adjacent logging spaces, monitoring spaces, metric spaces, and APM spaces are like, yo, we do observability too. And I'm like, 
No, you, no, you don't. You don't. Because like, if you accept the definition of it's about the unknown unknowns and, you know, all this other stuff where they have happily lifted all of the marketing language, they're like, yeah, we do unknown unknowns. You know, if you accept that definition, then there are a lot of things that proceed from that, technically speaking. Like you, you have to be able to handle high cardinality, high dimensionality. Your source of truth has to be these arbitrarily wide structured data blobs because if they're, if they're not arbitrarily wide, then that means that you were predefining in advance what this schema was like, which is mean that you're, you're telling, you're telling your future self what they can expect to see, which again is not the point. And I, I believe and I hope that under the hood, like all these other companies are trying very quickly to build the technical stuff to catch up with their marketing language, but it's really, really maddening for me in the meantime. In the meantime, I would say that Lightstep and Honeycomb are the only observability providers out there. You know, and I, I think that um, that connection you make with the cardinality, because I, I think there's, it's another term that, you know, is a math and physics major is like, yeah, cardinality. But, you know, most... You know, no, people don't use that term. When I was in charge of marketing for Honeycomb, I was like, cardinality is going to be a winner for us. <laughs> Let's market based on this. And we got five great customers from that campaign. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, well, like the, yeah, the, the other people that know what the words means. Yeah. And, you know, well, and, and I think like it's, it's one of those words that like when you, when you connect it to reality and, and, it, and you I understand think, um, it clicks. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah. I see why this matters. Because exactly. all of the interesting debugging information is going to be high cardinality. Yeah. And um and I think the way you describe the, you know, cardinality in terms of, you know, when we had monoliths and you know, where I started out too, you had the three tier architectures. I remember being super proud of the day that I took this architecture I was working on and I put it in a Visio diagram and we could we we had a giant printer. You know, one of those, I don't know if you remember, but it was like, it was ridiculous. It was like six feet across or oh, something. Yeah. And we printed it out and put it up on the wall like, yes. Yes. And, and it actually was reasonably accurate for like months, right? Whereas like you get to these um, microservices and they're organic. It's, they're like it's, living it's things. Ephemeral. It's blipping in and out of existence, you know? It's dynamic. It's, it's in response to like, to like what's happening on the ground and you just have to there's this you know there's this whole shift that you kind of have to make from trying to prevent mistakes trying trying to prevent errors to just embracing them and going this is constant this is a fact of a reality and uh we're going to you know what errors are amazing because we learn something from every time something fails and and our goal is not to prevent them it's to be resilient to as many errors as possible Mm. yeah you know that's um yeah, I think one uh, one guy I uh, worked with used to call that the uh, limit, limiting the blast radius. Um, uh, yeah, that, that it makes a lot of sense, and 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 I think that when you go back to like how you talked about the investigation process, uh, you can tell me if this makes sense to you, but like that whole idea, I think I actually described to somebody the other day as like uh, you know the tip of an iceberg, but like you you have a couple of signals that say something might be wrong, like you're going into going to the emergency room and you know, they're looking at your size of your pupils and they're looking at your blood pressure and they're like, well, you're bleeding all over yourself. And these are, these are pretty simple indicators that even a non-professional can see, but they can kind of interpret it. But to, once you delve in and the surgeon comes in or the physician, they're opening up, like they're literally their, their area of possible investigation and things that they could touch or feel or measure just explodes in complexity. Yeah. And, um, and, and you, like you said, like the, the systems in the early 2000s were all about that initial question. They never expanded beyond that. Right. 
And we have the benefit of instrumentation. Like the surgeon can never actually like tell your foot, let me know if you get too cold, <laughs> right? Like, which is something that I deeply wish that I had for my own body. I don't know about you, but like, but like we get to do that. And like, so this is the final step. I feel like when you're writing code, you, you, you're, you need to be thinking about your future self and all the poor, you know, saps who are going to be debugging this shit long after you left, right? Yeah. How are you going to know if it's working or not? What instrumentation should you add? What might someday be, you know, the missing link or, you know, and so like just get, getting in this training ourselves to like instrument for the future while we're writing code so that, you know, after you merge your, your code to, to, to prod, it should go live like within minutes, like automatically, like you, there should not be any human involved because when you add a human gate, then you add variability. And what you want is for this to become muscle memory. You merge your code, you go and you look at it. <laughs> you look at it in production through the lens of the instrumentation that you just wrote. While it's all fresh in your head, you know exactly what you were trying to do. You know exactly what the edge cases are. You know exactly what the outliers are and what to look for. And it's, it's going to decay quickly, right? You're going to move on to something else. And so right now is when you need to look at it and ask yourself, is it doing what I expected it to do? And does anything else look weird? Right. And it's irreducible from that. Like weird is irreducible because, you know, you, if you're in your systems every day, you, you get this, this very visceral feel for what normal is. Right. And if you're only looking at it when you know something's wrong, you're not going to have that feeling. So you have to be looking at it every day and like building that muscle of just like, does it look weird? <laughs> okay. I'm going to go investigate. <laughs> right. And if you do that, I swear to God, like 80, 90% of all problems will never even get to the point where your users can see them because you'll see it right then and there. If you don't see it right then and there, you move on to something else. (laughs) The world moves on. The bugs that you shift become part of the new normal. So everyone absorbs them as normal, right? And it'll take months for users to tease them out. And that's just really inefficient. And that's how we get in a state where like, we're shipping code that we don't understand, the systems we've never understood, and just crossing our fingers and like curating our monitoring thresholds going, well, it seems okay. And that's just that. <laughs> Does not mean, let you move quickly with confidence. Well, you know, um, one, one thing I'd, I'd definitely be really interested in hearing, um, you know, your, your thoughts on is that, um, you know, because I remember, and, and, and I've definitely seen you, you write about some of this, is that the, you know, I think early on when I started, you, you were, you know, you, you typically, the, the kind of stuff you monitor is either stuff that somebody at a vendor somewhere said, oh, you should monitor this. And it just came out of the system and there's nothing you could do about it. Or it was like very hand curated. Right. And then it, it feels like there was a period of time. I don't know if it was like in a 2010, 2012 timeframe where it was like monitor everything. And it's like just throwing yeah. as much stuff as possible in the system. Yeah. And like nobody knew what to do with it. Right. Yeah. And, um, and then you you kind of have this reverse thing where it's like, and, and I know you have opinions on this, on the, you know, the three pillars or, you know, like trying to like collapse it all into like these. But it, it, it seemed to me, and I, and I know you've, you've mentioned this before, that it, it kind of missed the whole point is you, you, need to, you need to know what to do with the data. Like what yeah. questions are you trying to answer? What, you know, and, 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 and a lot of times there's this, this tendency of, let's just check a box and get a whole bunch of data out there and like, it'll be fine, but it, it really yeah. won't. No, it, the more you emit can make it the harder to find the actual 
root causes. And like, you don't mm-hmm. want to be in a situation where you're trying to predict what questions you're going to need to ask because you can't. Um, and this is where I feel like this is a really subtle thing, but like the data model matters, right? If you're mm-hmm. incentivizing engineers to just like, anytime you see something that might someday be useful, toss it in, right? If, you, if your source of truth is this arbitrarily wide structured data blob, adding more dimensions to that data blob almost free right it's just a few more bytes of memory and so it's not versus like if if your model is the the metrics model it's it it is literally like linearly linearly (laughs) goes up the cost and storage and everything and 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 you cannot ask new questions of metrics you can only ask the questions where you store the data to answer that question in the beginning right so i feel like the metrics model which is what datadog prometheus are has just reached its end of the road Right. It mm. just, it's not at the, at the time of right, you are throwing away all of the context that links all of the metrics together and you can't, you can't get back to them. Right. You can, you can take it a arbitrarily wide structured data blob and from it, you can infer or you can derive the metrics and the unstructured log and the traces, but you can't go backwards. You can't actually mm. go backwards to that source of truth. And I feel like what we have right now is, is a bunch of companies were built on the wrong data model and they're trying as hard as they can to get to the right one, I assume, under the hood. Because like because it's not about you want to incentivize people to to capture all the data and then you want to make it as flexible as possible so they can answer and ask any question of that. Yeah. Any combination, any permutation, you know, you want to make it very, very flexible and queryable so that they don't have to predict what the questions they're gonna ask. Yeah. No, no, I, I... I think you described that really well. And I think that's, you know, it, it, what's, what's interesting and having, you know, been in the industry for a while, like I think what you de- describe is like changing the model. I mean, that's the perennial problem of, of, of software products because it yeah. happened. Migrations from are mainframe. a bitch. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. You're, you're moving from, you moved from mainframes to mini, you know, mini computers, mini, you know, to serve and so on and so forth. And like always, every time there's a change, the previous vendors, the vendors that latched that model for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, it's very, very hard to yeah. to change your model after the fact because you've got revenue depending on yeah, it. Yeah, you really do. You've got customers, you've got people. And it's even harder in computing because <clears throat> generations of technologies have a way of being cheaper than the ones that came before. Yeah. And so if you have a bunch of revenue that's locked up in the old way of doing things, you'll be undercutting your own business if you bring out cheaper way of doing things which can be very very hard to swallow and yeah. tracing is a really interesting thing here too like so you mentioned the three pillars and i've got to shit on them for a second because <laughs> the only reason there are three pillars are because these these companies have three products to sell you <laughs> monitoring right, yeah. logs and traces and that is the only reason there is no logical reason in fact it is it is more expensive to have three different products and but it's also bad for the user because if you've got three products or four products or whatever, you've got a person sitting in the middle copy pasting things around, right? So you look at your monitoring dashboards, you see a spike, you're like, ooh, what is that? Well, now you jump over and do your logging thing and you try and correlate the timestamps and the services or whatever. And then you find an example of the problem. You copy paste an ID over to your tracing solution. You know, you stored this data three times for no good reason. Um, and, and you're in the middle trying to like make sense of them. Well, that's not, better right it, it really like traces should just be a visualization mode that you can view them by time or you can view them by mm. you know by some other dimension but that's that that's that doesn't really matter 
it should be like, you know, two sides of the single of a single coin, just flipping back and forth. Because what that allows you to do is it allows you to go from very high level, like, oh, my SLOs are violated, all the way down to the raw events, right? Diffing like what happened in this version ID versus that version ID versus that version ID for these dimensions. And then you can just kind of like, you know, oh, I'm going to trace this. Oh, they're in my trace. I see the problem. Now I want to zoom back out and see who else is impacted by this. And just sort of that like toggling like dynamically back and forth um, becomes impossible if you have to drop, jump between product edges. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, and I, I think you're, 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 you're really right there. There's, there is a tendency to try to take a new concept and, and kind of boil it down to previous concepts. And, you know, um, you know, and that's one of the reasons why, marketing often gets such a bad rap because there's this uh, like oh but we've got to map this to the right. old model we can take what we already have on the truck it has and to be done with understanding or it won't have credibility yeah. or unless yeah. you pay enough <laughs> if you have enough dollars behind it then it will and that's how I, what i feel has happened to the three pillars it's just like well all of the big vendors have endorsed this therefore it is true which is sort of unfortunate <laughs> Yeah, well, there therein lies the history of the software industry, right? <laughs> um, and um, you know, and, and particularly, you know, on that, I mean, so we we've kind of gotten to this transition where you know, monitoring has gone to like you know, um, you know, we had the, like the the monitoring is dead talks, and uh, you know, at, at Monitorama and that that whole thing, and now we're kind of in this observability, uh, you know, phase, and you know been misused and you know whatever so where do you where do you feel like this is going i mean you you sit in a perch where i feel like you have a really you know good you know visual of what's really going on i mean where do you see this going it's being driven by pain you know like the pain Mm. of the engineers who are trying to build these ever you know the services that are just exploding in complexity and the only way, so if you look at the DORA report, right, the DevOps research report year over year, it's really fascinating because you can see year over year um, from 2018 to 2019, the bottom 50% of teams in terms of their efficiency, they actually lost ground. <laughs> and and the top 20% is like achieving like escape velocity. And, and, and this speaks to the fact that, you know, if you're standing still in computers, you're losing ground because entropy is always coming for you. <laughs> you know, there's always more complexity coming. There's more users, things are degrading and it's just, you can't stand still. And and the teams that have embraced like the new way of doing things, there's pain involved, but it's short-term pain that leads you to a better place. And it's not just observability, but it's like, you know, observability and feature flags and progressive deployments and like all of this tooling that reinforces each other, which brings developers into the day-to-day operations of their code and which makes ops people enablers, right? We're systems enablers to help people own. We have, like ops is never going away. (laughs) There is an expertise there that is deep and real, but we have to stop being like blockers to progress and we have to start, you know, pushing and enabling the progress. And, and, And I feel like this is... Often people people look at that and they look at that top 20% and they go, well, I'm not one of those engineers. You know, this isn't for me. This is for the Googles and the Facebooks in the world. And I would most strongly push back against that. Your ability to ship code fast and, and you know, safely, like with confidence, 
comes like 10 to 20% from the knowledge of algorithms and data structures in your head. Like it's not about you. It's about the system around you. It's about the team around you. It's about the system around you. You know, someone joins a high performing engineer, joins a low performing team within three to six months, you will meet their level of being able to ship, right? It's just, it's all about the system. So those of us who have like gotten over the hump of being a senior engineer in our careers, right? Those, those of us who have some authority and credibility, whether you have a technical role or a people role, we, our mandate and our mission has to be creating the systems that will let everyone be in the top 20%, creating the systems that will ship your code safely, fast, you know, quickly, cleanly, that gives you the tools to inspect it at very low granularity when it's in production and say, you know, is it, is it doing what I expected? Is it doing, is it doing anything else that looks weird? And, and then, you know, driving home those, those cultural principles that will, you know, create the expectation that everyone looks at their code and owns it in production. Yeah. I, I really like the way you, you explain that charity. Cause I, I, I think in particular, if there is, um, I literally was just talking to somebody about this. I feel like if there's one lesson I've learned in the last 20 years in this industry is that everybody always thinks it's about technology, but nine times out of 10 is mostly about people. And about culture. It's about both. It's about the intersection. We, these are socio-technical systems and you're not going to solve them by just looking at the people or just looking at tech, the technology or just looking at the tools. It's got to be a cohesive, it's got to be all three because, you know, there is no recipe book. There is no roadmap. Your system is unique and it is complex and it has its own needs. And sometimes you will need to break the rules or the consensus, right? But only you know where. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And if you don't, if you don't have the right combination of both, you, 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 you can't succeed. Yep. Um, well, as, as always, Charity, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm an honor to have you on the podcast and well, you're, so much for letting you're me rant. <laughs> absolutely. You're, uh, you're even more engaging in person. And, um, as, as I, I, I love your perspectives you put out there and I'm, I'm glad we were able to bring you on. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Thanks. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for for listening. And we'll we'll definitely put some uh, links in the in the show notes about some of the stuff that Charity's talking about, and to and the, to Honeycomb and some of the things that she works on. And uh, as always, thank you for listening. Take care. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.